when I was learning how to sail uh, Chesapeake Bay with my father, he taught me an important principle when you're sailing, that um, particularly in a race, that you always want to have a fixed point of reference uh, in land uh, to keep the boat pointed to. Because with the shifting winds and shifting currents um, and the distractions with sailing, you can easily get off track very easily. And you can all of a sudden be sliding off and perhaps even lose the race. So you always wanted to pick a point, a house, or something that you could just stay on track so that we wouldn't far far off track. And we kind of do this every year at the church, actually. What we want to do every year is kind of go back through the vision. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why do we gather? Why are we worshiping together? Just a reminder to you. It's why I ask you every year, do you love Christ more this year than you did last year? There are very measurable means of discerning, have you grown in your love for Christ? And if you haven't, then it just means we're straying off track and we need to make a correction. And as we've been doing this year, Nick, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about the uh, loving God's world. That's a third plank of our vision, if you will, loving God's world. And he spoke from uh, Genesis chapter 12, where God promised to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. And of course, the nations have been blessed by the son that came from Abraham. And now our task is to continue to do that work. And he outlined all the things that we're doing in the world of missions. And then John last week preached about how we can love God's glory by exercising and enjoying this privilege of prayer, of appealing to God with an open door and an inclined ear. And then today, I want to just preach on loving God's people. Loving God's people, one way of loving God's people is that we would be actively engaged in seeking the spiritual good of one another. That's really, that's Mark Dever's quick definition of discipleship, seeking the spiritual good of another person. That The scriptures teach that God has chosen you to be an instrument in bringing about a greater holiness in one another. It isn't simply the job of the leadership of the church. It's your job to seek the spiritual good of another. In the passage we're looking at today in Colossians chapter 3, he really lines up three essential ingredients that are necessary if we are going to be a church that actually and actively seeks the spiritual good of one another. And these three ingredients are really, each one is essential. One is that we want to be a community of peace, that we, though we have conflict, seek to reconcile and, and, to, and to exercise forgiveness. Secondly, that we would be a people that cherish and speak about the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel would be so large in our minds that it would come forth in what we worship, what we delight in, and what we talk about. And then last, that our motivation would be wrapped up in a great vision of Christ. So look with me, if you will, at Colossians chapter 3, and we'll just move through these. It's only three verses, three points. should be fairly easy to follow. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, 16, and 17. In 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So these three things, if we're going to be a church that is actively pursuing the spiritual good of one another, we have to exist in, a, in, a, in peace and in unity. The scripture is clear. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Now, I'm not speaking about a peace that is like anxiety-free. Sometimes we get anxious and we just need to feel peaceful. I'm not speaking about that. The peacefulness here is about a harmony, a wholeness in the relationships that we have with God and with each other. And this is why he's saying, be at peace, or let the peace of Christ rule you. Now, this peace of Christ, um, you know, Jesus is known, of course, he's called the Prince of Peace. So the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has come to bring a peace, a peace between God and with us. And he's come to bring this peace by, as you know the gospel story, bearing our sin, and then bearing the wrath of God associated with our sin. If we would have read through the whole book of Colossians, we would have hit this in chapter 1, where he says, He has made peace through his blood on the cross. So in other words, Jesus has removed a guilty judgment that God legitimately had against us. That the sins that we have committed against God have rendered us guilty and separated from God. And Jesus is the peacemaker. He ultimately brings us back to God, but he bears the penalty and the judgment of what separated us from God. So he's come to bring peace. So when Paul says in a church, let the peace of Christ rule, what that means is our hearts are governed by the knowledge that Jesus has done for us with the Father that we could never do. We now have peace with God. There's no more fear. There's no more dread. Death no longer presents that that fear before us, that what's he going to say? How's he going to respond? How's he going to act towards us? What will his disposition be? We don't need to fear that anymore because Jesus has come to make peace. And that overwhelming sense of joy and satisfaction in the peace is now to be extended to one another. I think Paul means to imply that that vertical peace is now to be distributed horizontally because you see at the end of verse 15 he says to which indeed you were called in one body that the body the church is to be marked by a people of peace now the implication here is that we will have conflict otherwise he wouldn't be calling for this but that the conflict is met by people seeking peace what can i do to bring peace that's the question so the christian is the one asking the question what can i do to bring peace the christian is not is not keeping long-standing conflict. The Christian is not. The Christian will avoid grudge holding. The Christian will seek to reconcile as quickly possible, as quickly as possible, with those with whom they have conflict. Because we're to be one body. Now, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. In fact, one author said it this way, A heart ruled by peace considers making peace a priority in settling conflicts or choosing between differing alternatives. So if we want to be a church that has a culture where disciple-making is part of the fabric of this place. We have to be a people that are seeking peace with those with whom we have conflict. Now, we all have conflict. 
And I don't mean to just say conflict is when it's a full-blown, the fists are clenched. I'm talking about the frustrations, the disappointments, the hurts, the, the little idiosyncrasies that create anger, which causes people to kind of separate. I'm speaking even about those things. Now, we have those, and unfortunately, many within the church can treat that in very unhelpful ways. We may blame shift, we may make excuses, we may exaggerate our hurts. And what this does is it, it distracts us from getting into a relationship where we can seek one another's spiritual good. But this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that he can command us to be at peace because he's achieved peace. And this is how the gospel is made visible. The gospel is made visible as we are seeking to extend peace one to the other. Now, a lot of communities have a degree of unity and a degree of harmony between them. It can be centered around sports, political. It can be centered around ethnicities or educational opportunities. It can be centered around a lot of things. But the church is to be a supernatural community that is uniquely at peace with one another. And, and the mark of a supernatural community is where we are extending peace towards those who have hurt us. We are extending love to those who may not be worthy of it. So this is the nature. If we want a church that wants to seek the spiritual good of one another, we have to be reconciling conflict. So I would just ask you, is there conflict remaining in your heart towards people in this church? Are you struggling? Maybe your hurt is legitimate. I, I I won't even deny that, but are you making, seeking peace? You know, I think about the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons and daughters of God. I mean, that's how you see your lineage to God if you're making peace as the Father made peace with us through Christ. Or Paul says, be at peace with all men as much as you're able. So, so, so let me just ask you, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters? Has conflict been resolved? Has intentions been made to bring about a full peace? Because if we don't have this in verse 15, it's going to be difficult to actively and sacrificially pursue the spiritual good of one another. So that's the first ingredient. Look at the second ingredient in verse 16 with me. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, with all wisdom. So if verse 15 is kind of the environment that we need for kind of discipleship to grow, if verse 15 is kind of the, you know, the, the, the field that we need to cultivate, verse 16 is really more a methodology. It's how do we seek the spiritual good? How will I do this? If I want to seek the spiritual good, how can I do it? Look what he says here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You notice he doesn't say let the words of Christ. It's not plural, it's singular. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's he mean by this? Well, I think he's kind of speaking collectively. He's speaking as if he's describing the whole work of Christ. In other words, God's redemptive work. So what God is doing to restore all things to himself is summed up in Christ. So God's perfect redemptive plan of drawing broken men and women to himself, it all sits on the shoulders of Jesus accomplishing a perfect life, of a death for our sins, a resurrection to the right hand of God. All of that, all of that 
is the word of Christ. Let that word of Christ dwell in you. In other words, that knowledge of God doing this saving work, that's to dwell in you. It's to inhabit you. It's to overwhelm you. In other words, this idea of dwelling is is not a temporal stay. This idea of dwelling is actually, it's influencing you. Like marinade to a meat. You can't distinguish after a few hours the marinade from the meat. The the marinade penetrates the meat, influences the meat, changes the taste of the meat. So so dwelling within us, that, that the word of Christ, the redemptive plan of God, summed up in Jesus Christ, is to be part of me. And, and notice what he says. It's dwelling in you. Now, in English, we can't tell whether you is singular or plural except by the, by the context. Unless you live in the South, and then you say y'all. And then we know how it's plural. But, but in English, you can't tell. But in Greek, you can. And this is a plural you. So think of what he's saying here. He's not talking about our personal devotions. He's not saying, hey, you ought to go to your prayer closet and really think about the great work that God has done for you in Christ although I would encourage that. He's saying, you know, as a church, you're to be doing this. As a church, you're to be corporately contemplating, celebrating, thanking, considering, discussing this great work of God in Christ. That, that we ought to be a people who are speaking and conversing all about the fact that we've been adopted, we've been forgiven, the fear of judgment has been removed, the joys of heaven are waiting for us, All those things are becoming conversational points for us. And and notice that he says the word of Christ ought to dwell in you richly, abundantly. In other words, we're to be like these buckets filled with water. That as soon as you move it, it just spills over. That that, that we're so full, that that work of God in Christ is so permeating the way I think and the way I perceive and the way I speak and the way I act. That it's like that bucket filled with water. As soon as it's moved, water comes spilling out. That's how filled we are. That's what he's calling for. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But not just that. He says, as you teach and admonish one another. There's a place for teaching. Now remember, teach and admonish one another. So this is your responsibility to the other people in in the membership of this church. And that teaching does kind of, it's appealing to the intellect. Teaching means that for us to exercise spiritual good to one another, that you are called to actually teach one another, instruct one another, appeal to the mind, bring forth truth. So you get a call and someone says, I'm, I'm in terrible shape, I just lost my job, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, that's a time to say, let me pray for you. God is able to provide for you. You're teaching them about the character of God in the midst of their struggle. You're seeking their spiritual good. They won't waver in faith because you're bringing truth about God to them. Or someone calls up and says, I've got a terrible situation with my child and I can't believe this. And you just stop and say, let me weep with you. Let me pray with you. Let me remind you of the, of the faithfulness of God, even in this situation. You're teaching in that time. That's how we're seeking the spiritual good. You're so filled up with the fullness of Christ, and then as you're squeezed, if you will, it pours out in instruction to other people. But not just instruction, but but also admonishment. Now, admonishment is different. You know, uh, teaching is appealing to the intellect. Admonishment is really appealing to the will, or it's appealing to the disposition. 
So when you admonish someone, what you're really doing is appealing to them to amend their life towards a new direction, away from maybe unhealthy or destructive tendencies. To admonish is actually meaning, it can even mean to correct or to rebuke. There is that role for us to play in the lives of one another. So you see in this verse 16, you know, the peace of Christ is the rule of our hearts. We're a people seeking peace. That's an environment in which discipleship can grow. And now we're to let the word of Christ fill us. So now we're teaching and admonishing one another out of the fullness of our own dwelling on Christ. Now, so do we do that? I mean, do you cherish the gospel? I mean, does it come up in in conversations? Does it come up in your thoughts? Are you filled with it? So using that example, if you're squeezed, what comes out of you? If you're squeezed by a trial or or some temptation, what comes out? Does, Does the longing for Christ or the peace and his sovereign goodness come out? What comes out? And if you were to consider the content of your conversations, do we speak about the things of God? Are we so filled that we're speaking about these things of God in Christ? What, wouldn't that be the mark of a healthy church, actually? I, and wouldn't a successful church not be just having programs that are busy and opportunities that are filled and a busy church calendar? Wouldn't it be a people that are so concerned about the spiritual good of one another that we're actively engaging in conversations to promote Christ in them? That I'm so concerned for you that I could, with Paul, say from Galatians, that he says, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. That's as close as we men can come to the pains of childbirth, I guess. But it's, if, if the parallel holds up, it's a real pain. It's a real hurt. It's a real desire that Christ be formed in them. How's that going to happen? Well, through us being the word of Christ dwelling within us, us teaching and admonishing one another. So what are the content of your conversations? It's a difficult thing, no doubt. But the clear teaching is that this is one to the other, not simply from the pulpit to the people. This isn't simply a responsibility of leadership, but it's a responsibility of being a Christian. And you have the spirit, you have the ability to do that. That the Christian knows, I'm not just about seeking my own spiritual good, I am about seeking the spiritual good of another. Uh, let me try to press this home to you using Colossians still. So in Colossians 1.28, this is what Paul says. He says, Him, that's Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. You hear the similarity? that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's speaking about his pulpit ministry, his apostolic call to proclaim Christ, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom, so that everyone would be made perfect in Christ. So then we go to chapter 3, 16, and what do we find? The same, almost virtually the same Greek language, said that now you do that which Paul does for each other. That's what your call is. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. So he's saying we're all going to be made perfect in Christ. He said, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's you. This is the community loving one another. Is 
seeking the spiritual good of another by teaching and admonishing through conversations, through, through having coffee, uh, through Bible studies, through different venues that you're teaching and admonishing one another. Now, why do we need this? Why does he have us do this? Well, well remember, as human beings, we are prone to wander. I mean, we're prone to assimilate the values of the culture, and we can quickly all of a sudden get off track. We need other people. Sunday morning is inadequate to bring about full perfection of people. It requires you to be engaged with each other. Now, I know this may feel like a responsibility. I pray that you'll see it as a privilege, that God is using you to cultivate a Christ-likeness in one another. And obviously, Paul thinks you're able to do it. He says in, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, um, well, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. In other words, he's saying, brothers, there are times you're going to need to admonish, you're going to need to encourage, you're going to need to strengthen, and there's a lot of times you're going to need to be patient with everybody. But that's the role you play, because we're prone to wander. Even, even John Wesley, you know, John Wesley is seen as just a towering spiritual figure now. He's the, one of the great evangelists of the 18th century, uh, British, but served here in America as well. And here's what he wrote about the need for people to help him stay on track, if you will. He says, I know no other place under heaven where I can have some friends always at hand of the same judgment and engaged in the same studies. Persons who are awakened into full conviction that they have but one work to do upon earth and who see at a distance what that one work is, even the recovery of a single eye and a clean heart, who in order to do this have, according to their power, devoted themselves to God and follow after their Lord. He says, to have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering as need is reproof or advice with all plainness and gentleness is a blessing I know not where to find in any part of the kingdom. So here, this towering spiritual figure that we respect so deeply, he's saying, yeah, I need people to help keep me on track. Well, that's us as well. But not just we're prone to wander, we're also prone to isolation. I mean, all of us here are prone to retreat and live individualized lives, out of reach, autonomous from everybody. There's an article that came out. A survey was done. Do pastors know when their people's marriage, when, when, when the marriages in their church are about to hit uh, the shores of ruin? And pastors, uh, the majority of pastors says, yes, we know that. And the survey came out, no, they don't know that. Pastors don't know it. They can't tell. And, and because a lot of the people whose marriages ultimately crumble, are attending church regularly. And so it came out through the survey that much of the reason pastors and leaders are unaware is because no one talks about it. It isn't perhaps a safe place. You don't feel comfortable. But, but we kind of isolate ourselves, retreat, and live this autonomous life. And it, and it reminded me of a one of the Proverbs in, in chapter 5 of the book, he says, At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline 
how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. They're in the church, but they're not connected. They're, they're living in isolated lives. They're, they're not sharing their struggles. They're not sharing their problems, and, and nobody knows. And they're just kind of rolling towards this, this bitter end, but nobody knows. And then they start thinking nobody cares, but nobody knows. I mean, there, there's a place, especially in our digital age now, that we need to communicate these things. This is why we need to teach and admonish one another. You need to be on the giving end and the receiving end. You know, John Stott, let me read to you. He's a deceased theologian now, just died recently, uh, a British Anglican uh, pastor, theologian, scholar. This is what he wrote in 1982. Now think about 82 for a minute. So computers, internet, they're not up to speed as, of course, they are now. And, and here's what he says. So this is back in 1982, and he's going to reference 2000. It only, applies, it only applies more appropriately today. He said this, It's difficult to imagine the world in the year AD 2000, by which time versatile microprocessors are likely to be as common as simple calculators are today. We should certainly welcome the fact that the silicon chip will transcend human brain power as the machine has transcended human muscle power much less welcome will be the probable reduction of human contact as the new electronic network renders personal relationships ever less necessary. In such a dehumanized society, the fellowship of the local church will become increasingly important whose members meet one another and talk and listen to one another in person rather than on a screen. In this human context of mutual love, the speaking and hearing of the word of God is also likely to become more necessary for the preservation of our humanness. I mean, that's true. We're prone to isolate ourselves. And then the third reason is we're prone to discouragement. We need to teach and admonish one another because we're prone to discourage. Life is difficult. I mean, many of you are fatigued. You're facing real legitimate struggles. You're tired. You're beat up. It often feels like Lions 10, Christian 0. It feels like we're on the losing end of things oftentimes. And we need the encouragement. And you know, the encouragement of the other brother or the sister is really an antidote to unbelief. The flirting with unbelief, the flirting with discounting the goodness of God because of the troubles we have, the antidote to that is that we encourage one another. We, we teach one another. We admonish one another. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew a little bit of this. He was a German theologian, of course, executed at the end of the Second World War when, uh, when uh, Hitler was about to be, you know, when Germany was about to fall. He was executed just days from liberation. And, of course, he had to spend time in uh, an underground church. So he knew about loneliness and the need for community. So he writes these words in his book, um, Life together. He says, But God has put this word into the mouth of men and women in order that it may be communicated to other men and women. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man or a woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. And when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself. He needs his brother 
or sister as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. How shall we ever help a Christian brother and set him straight in his difficulty and doubt if it's not with God's own word? All of our words quickly fail. So let me just encourage you. I know this may be intimidating because to enter into a spiritual conversation, you may actually run out of things to say or you may be asked a question that you don't know and that is just absolutely, it can freeze people. May I encourage you that Apart from you engaging one another, this plan that God has established for the sanctification of his people hits a real roadblock. Do you have anybody in your life to whom you're speaking and encouraging? Do you receive from anybody? Do you, do you give an ear to anyone? Do you expose yourself in the, maybe the, the corners of your life? Does anyone know really how much you're hurting or how much you're struggling? Does anyone know that? Could I ask you by faith to consider opening up a little bit? And, and for those that are willing to engage, can I, can I encourage you by faith to step forward, trusting the Spirit of God to lead you to engage people? And how are you doing spiritually? What, what verse has meant something to you this week? You know, Can we just read this scripture together and talk about it? I need your spiritual help. I think you need my spiritual help. It's really fundamental. In this environment of peace, there has to be us practicing the word of Christ dwelling within us as we teach and admonish one another. But look at the third ingredient in verse 17. This is really, for me, kind of the engine that's going to drive this train. And that is, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything. And then I think what Paul's doing here, he's taking the whole chapter previous to this, and he's saying, whatever you do, whether you speak words of encouragement or whether you speak words of admonition, and whatever you do, whatever the sacrifices for the spiritual good of other people, do it in the name of Jesus. Let him be your motivation. He's giving us fuel here, a motivation. It's scary to engage other people. It's intimidating to enter into spiritual conversations. It's frightening to let your guard down, to let your guard down and expose the struggle you have with other people because they won't think, you fear that they won't think so highly of you. But if we do with a vision of Christ, do it for the glory of God. If we do it for his name and for his glory, this is what, has pushed the church to suffer martyrdom. For the glory of Christ, we lay down our lives for him. Well, if that's true, then for the glory of Christ, can we not engage people, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom? I I really think this is it. The, the, The greater your hearts are captivated with his glory, the more willing you're willing, the more willing you are to step in faith to walk out what Paul's instructing us here. If, if you're not captivated by the gospel, it's not going to come out of you as easily. If you're not devoted, if you're not thinking, if you're not considering, if you don't see the desperate position from which you've been drawn as a Christian, then it's going to, it'll be like the small little trinket you get at Christmas. It's nice, you're thankful for it. It gets put on a shelf, you never think about it again. Instead of the one large gift that you really wanted, that you've really been counting on, and you finally get it, that's what you think about. That's what you dwell upon. 
What I'm really trying to encourage us here is uh, it's not a program. You're not going to get an email to sign up on the web. You're not going to have a, a sign-up sheet in the foyer. I'm talking about a culture here, an organic movement of God's Spirit among us. This is what I'm praying for, an organic, spirit, an organic movement by God's Spirit where we begin to cross lines and seek the spiritual good of one another. Uh, and I want to just remind you that I think, and I don't think I'm overstepping, but, but I think God's plan is contingent, if you will, on this. You know, th- think about it. L- let, me set this, let me set this passage in the context of redemptive history. You have God who has already, he's already revealed his will. He's created men and women for his glory so that they can enjoy him that he can be a benevolent, great God to them, and they can love him. And he told them to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, expand the family. Cause the earth to flourish. And this is God's picture of joy, that God reigning over people who love and serve him, that he fellowships with, and we find our joy in him, the creator of all things. That's the picture. But we see quickly in Genesis 3 that it collapses, that the first parents who who didn't see God's love as protective but as restrictive moved away from him, broke rank with him, saw him as distrustful, and went their own way. And it introduced what? Death came into our world separation came into our world and and yet God's not defeated by sin God sets in motion this plan really from the foundation of the world but it materializes in a promise that a savior is going to come and deliver all things think about it God's whole plan is spinning out of control and yet God moves with this savior this messiah that's going to bring all things back to God so that we will again one day be with him forever enjoying him in harmony and joy and satisfaction and all of it rests on Christ And so Christ comes. That's what we celebrate in Advent. He comes and he does this great work of redeeming us, restoring us. He has accomplished fully salvation. But now it's the work of the church to apply that salvation by teaching and admonishing, loving one another. You see it really in chapter 3 of Colossians. If you were to go back to the beginning of chapter 3, he says that your lives are now hid with Christ in God. You and I have a new identity. The Christian has a new identity. We are now being remade. We have been recreated. We've been born again. But then Paul says right in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, so if you have a new identity, if you've been born again, put off the old man. Put away anger, malice, slander, envy. And and from verses 5 to verses 11, he says, put off these things. And then in verse 12, he says, you're my chosen ones, language of the Old Testament people of God. He says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, long-suffering. He says, bear with one another, forgive one another, and over all these things, put on love. Put on love. And then, so that's the new wardrobe we have, right? You put off, you put on, and then... Our passage comes, 15, 16, and 17. This is how we do what he just said. We dwell. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The word of Christ dwells in us richly, and we live for his glory, serving and sacrificing for one another, seeking the spiritual good of one another. This is how it happens. So here's what I would propose to you for this year. Again, there's no plan. 
There's no person that's going to lead this ministry other than the Spirit of God. I would ask you to consider just first praying, just asking God, God, help me embrace this. If you believe in the truthfulness of what I'm saying, then ask God, God, help me want to seek the spiritual good of another. Maybe you're just struggling with, you don't really think about the spiritual good of anybody else. Well, great, let's, let's fix that one first. So let's seek God that you would have a heart that you would again be in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in all your brothers and sisters. And then I would ask you to consider to consider taking somebody, maybe starting with somebody close that you already are comfortable with, and maybe offering to read a book with them. Just grab a book. We have plenty of books out there. You know, they can be seven, eight, nine, ten chapters. Meet over one chapter once a week with coffee. Just talk about the book. You don't have to bring anything to the table. Just bring the book to the table. And what did you learn from the book? Was it a good book? Was it a bad book? What helped you? What didn't help you? And just seek conversational encouragement of other people. Or grab a book of the Bible. We have a book out there, One-on-One, by David Helm. It's a small little book, and I can send you this in an email after the sermon. It's a great little book on just how do you read the Bible with another person? What are some good questions to ask of the text that we can ask each other? This is, what, this is all I'm talking about. This isn't fancy. This isn't any sort of higher math. This is just, let's talk about God and what he is doing or what he needs to do in your life. It might be over coffee. It might be over lunch that you just say, hey, once a month I'm going to invite someone from this church that I don't know into my home and have lunch. And I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to ask. It, it can be easy. It can be complicated. Whatever you want. But, but just we have to begin moving toward this way so that we would have a culture here where I am actively pursuing your spiritual good. You are actively pursuing my spiritual good. So that's all I got. Just three things. Discipleship has to grow in an environment of peace. It has to be meted out through us the word of Christ dwelling on us richly, teaching and admonishing one another, and, and then to, to motivate us and to move us, we have to have a great vision of the glory of Christ to move us toward that goal. So let's take a minute now, and I would ask you just to ask God for grace, if true, that your heart would be convicted or even comforted to do this. And that he would bring to your mind people that you might meet with. And then an elder will close this in just a minute.